The name's Harry Dolowich, a.k.a. King of the Egg Cream, and boy, do I have a story for you. So if you like love stories with a side of racketeering, make sure you tune in to King of the Egg Cream wherever you get your podcasts. Mystery Theater presents... This is Christopher Lee, the host of Mystery Theatre. Radio featured tales of murderers and con men, of deceivers and thieves, tracked by master detectives. On one programme, however, the mystery was never who committed the crime. The question was, how and when will he or she be caught? The series featured an omniscient narrator, who spoke directly to the criminals, and so it seemed, to you. If you haven't guessed already, I'm referring to the Whistler, and we'll join him as he reveals the dark secrets hidden in the hearts of men and women. And later, Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons, lets us tag along as he solves a complicated murder case. But first, Frank Sinatra takes on another adventure as Rocky Fortune, after these words. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Careers have their ups and downs, and 1950 to 1953 was a low point in Frank Sinatra's career. In 1950, he was fired by MGM. His record sales were slumping, and his CBS radio show, called Meet Frank Sinatra, ended in 1951, followed by the demise of his television series in 1952. In June of 52, Sinatra was dropped by both Columbia Records and the MCA talent agency, leaving him without a network, agent, movie studio, or record label. But through it all, Sinatra persevered and in 1954 won the Best Supporting Oscar for From Here to Eternity, revitalizing his career. During this tough patch, Sinatra kept busy, starring in the series you're about to hear, Rocky Fortune. Old Blue Eyes played a footloose and fancy-free young drifter who found his way in and out of trouble. Here's Frank Sinatra in Social Director on Rocky Fortune. Presenting Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune. Frank Sinatra, who stars as that footloose and fancy-free young gentleman, Rocky Fortune. Hi. Say, if you have a vacationed up in the Casco Mountains, you've probably heard of Mama Greenspan, the best cook between the Waldorf and Grossingers. 
Mama runs Greenspan Villa, which was quite the place to go before son Larry started to gamble away the profits. I did a hitch there as assistant social director a couple of years back, and last week I got a call from Mama asking me to pinch hit for a few days till she could find a new social director. Before I got through, I was not only a social director, I was almost a funeral director at my own death. Pardon me, lady, is uh, this the Waldorf Astoria? Is this... Rocky! Rocky, my boy. How are you, Mama? Oh, let me look at you. Mm. Ah, you're just the same. Nothing but flesh and bone. <laughs> Come in the kitchen, I'll fix you something. Uh, I just ate, Mama. No, 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 you, you'll force yourself. Come on, Doc. Tell me, uh... How come you need a social director all of a sudden? Well, the last director eloped with one of the guests without so much as a howdy-doody. Here, sit. I'll snack you. Now, look, let's keep it down to six or seven courses, Mama. Tell me uh, about this job. What do I do? How many guests have you got? Well, for the last week, all we had was old Mr. Siegel in 212 and Mrs. Rafferty, the fat lady, from 216. But all of a sudden, yesterday comes a Mr. Martin and an hour later, a young girl from Flatbush. Such a pretty little thing. Your eyes could fall out from looking on her. With such a pickup in business, I thought, Mama, good times is coming back again. You should get a social director. And you figured I was out of work, so you called oh, me. I don't pay much, but at least you'll, you'll eat good until you find something more substantial. Mama, you're absolutely wonderful. How's Larry? Larry? You remember your son. We used to play handball together when I worked here, remember? Oh, that Larry. Well, what's the matter, Mama? Oh, everybody has his own troubles. Why should I make mine yours? Come on now, tell me about it. Well, I, I... I guess you knew Laurie ain't exactly a dependable boy. Not a bad boy, understand, but... But after Papa died, he, he started to go with bad fellas, and, and he gambled. And one thing led to another. Yeah, I, I read where he got sent up for a year. Uh, only six months he was there. And when he came out a few weeks ago, he was a changed boy. Mama, he said, from now on, the straight and crooked path. No more gambling. I'm going to get a job. He said it right here in this kitchen. So? So he tried to get a job, and nobody would take him. So he got mixed up again. And... And what? And they're looking for him to kill him. Oh, Rocky. Now, take it easy, Mama. Take it easy. Who's looking to kill him? Oh, the man who came yesterday. Uh, Mr. Bugsy Martin. How do you know this? Uh, how do I know? Larry called me on the telephone and... And asked me if Bugsy Martin was here. And he said Bugsy Martin was after him. And I shouldn't say I heard from him. Period. Did he, um, did he tell you why this guy is after him? You read in the newspaper where the federal payroll was held up last week? The post office job. The post office job. Rocky, I think Larry was involved. Mm. What makes you think he was in on this job? Because the post office was in Albany. And I happen to know that Larry had a plane ticket for Albany the day before. Also, I know he was mixed up with those no-goodniks again. In other words, you don't really need a social director. In other words, I need a friend, Rocky. I need somebody who can help me in case Larry comes. Maybe you could talk some sense in him somehow. Maybe, Mama. I'll do what I can. But for now, you better introduce me to the guest, huh? Mama took me out on the porch where the three paying guests were rocking back and forth. The first was Bugsy Martin, a tough-looking character with a bulge under his arm where the artillery was stacked. Seated next to him was a fat lady dipping into a box of nuggets, and next to her was a very jazzy-looking blonde with a mind like Billy Dawn. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I want you should all meet our new social director, Mr. Fortune. This is Mr. Martin. Where's the matches? Hi. Mrs. Rafferty. Mrs. Rafferty is a widow. <laughs> Call me Gertrude. How are you, Gertie? And this is Miss Miller. Hello. What do I call you? Call me any time. Are you for real? I mean, flesh and blood? <laughs> Mostly blood. You ain't, uh, married or anything. Uh-uh. Mind if I touch you? Steady now, I'm ticklish. Well, it isn't that I'm bold or anything, Mr. Fortune, but I have a one-week vacation, understand? My boss, Mr. Marcus, went to Florida. So I said to myself, Gloria, why not go to the mountains? Maybe you'll meet some young man and, and I'll have a little fun and... Meet a lot of people, and who knows? You might even make the acquaintance of somebody worthwhile. So? So I had to pick a week when every place was booked up except here. <laughs> For two days now, I've been sitting on this rocking chair. Oh, I'm chair sick. You know, I haven't even seen a delivery boy. Ooh, I'm so glad to see you. No, 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 just a minute, honey. Steady, I'm not looking to settle down a flat bush and raise kids. Who said anything about settling down? You're a social director? That's right. So direct to me. Oops. I'm just beginning to enjoy my new job when Mama comes out and interrupts me. It seems that old Mr. Siegel, who is not feeling well and can't leave his room, would like his lunch brought up. Whatever is wrong with old Mr. Siegel, it ain't stomach trouble because lunch consists of a half a dozen of Mama Greenspan's famous 12-pound blintzes chicken soup with matzo balls and a copy of Josephine Jackson's 10-day reducing diet. Come in. Mr. Siegel? Yes. Yes, put it down and get out. You ain't polite. Go, go. Maybe I should introduce myself. I'm Rocky Fortune, the new social director. Out. Anything you say, Sal. I'll just put the tray down here. I'm sorry the cover fell off. Clumsy ox. It's all right. I'll just put it back on and... Well, well. What is it? Excuse me, Mr. Siegel, but this note just fell out of one of the blinches. Give it to me. Sure, sure. Now get out. Not for a while. What? I said not for a while. You and me are going to converse first. Get out of here or I kill you. My, my, my. Do nice old men like you always carry 45s? Give me that. Let go. Drop it. My Drop arm, it. you break it. That's better. Now you can take off the phony beard, Larry. You punk. I had to kill you for this. Sit down. I said sit down. Now lay off, will you? So you're the boy who was going to go straight. Did Mama tell you? She told me everything except that you were up here making like a paying guest. The note in the blintz told me that. Now Bugsy, he'll kill me if he finds out. You better level with me, Larry. Unless you want him to find out. That's crazy. You won't believe me. Let's have it. Last week, Bugsy said he could get me a job driving a truck up in Albany. I went up. You didn't tell Mama. I wanted to surprise her. Go on. My first job is to deliver a load of furniture someplace, I thought. I pulled a truck up right across the street from the post office and started moving the furniture into the house. Everything seems fine. All of a sudden, I hear shooting. I rush out. The street looks empty. I finish a job and start to drive to the next stop. Only I notice somebody has tossed a black bag into the truck. When I open it, a hundred grand in hot government money. Bugsy tossed the stuff into the truck and took off. I got scared. I ditched the truck and took off with the money, figuring I'd go to the cops. 
But you developed a case of sticky fingers. I couldn't get it, Sharp. It won't work, Larry. You know that. And also, if Bugsy and the guys don't get you, the federal agents will. I know. I've been trying to get up enough nerve to go to the cops. But then Bugsy showed up. Since then, Mama's been hiding me up here. Why didn't you just phone? Or have Mama phone? They're watching Mama like a hawk. Maybe they got the phones tapped. How do I know? One peep and they'd be up here with heaters. You still willing to go to the cops? Ain't got much choice now. All right. I'll get him for you. You stay here. Okay, Rocky. Don't change your mind. I won't. I leave Larry Greenspan in his room and head down to the kitchen to tell Mama the news. She's just tasting a ladle full of Kreplock soup when I come in. Mama. Oh, 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 you frightened me. I'm sorry. Listen, Mama, can I use the phone in your office? Why not? I just talked to Larry. Oh, you found out? Didn't you want me to? Come on, tell me, Mama. Hush, somebody could hear. So you met Mr. Siegel? Uh-huh. He says to call the gentleman with the blue suits and order one today. Oh, you're not joking, Rocky. Uh-uh, he's willing to turn over the money, too. Now, the main thing is to make sure that Bugsy Shh, doesn't... somebody's by the door. Hold it, hold it. Hi. Oh, excuse me. I just came in to see if there wasn't something in the icebox I could nosh before lunchtime. Help yourself. Here, here's a piece of strudel. Oh, that's fine. Thank you. Excuse me for interrupting. Perfectly all right. You were saying? I'll make the call. Keep Bugsy out on the porch. Anything you say. Oh, Rocky, I'm, I'm so happy he decided to go to the police. You have no idea... I hope they treat him good. Take it easy, Mama. We're not in the clear yet. I'm going to call a buddy of mine in the New York department. He's a slob, but he's an honest cop. I slip into Mama Greenspan's office on the first floor and get my thumb in the dial. Operator, I want the New York City Police Department. Person to person to Sergeant Hamilton J. Finger, first detectives. That's right. Yeah, I'll wait. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hello, Hamilton. Rocky. Listen, how'd you like to be promoted to chief of detectives? I got the loot from the Albany post office job. Also, a friend of mine can finger the crooks for you. No, I'm cold sober. This is a nice guy who got made the patsy. Will you treat him decent? Good. I'm up at Mama Greenspan's in a Borscht belt. You been... Okay, I'll see you. I hang up the phone and start to turn around, but in the middle of my turn, somebody drops a ton of stale bagels on the back of my skull, and I see the broadloom coming up to me. transpired. What, with the door was open, I came in and you were kissing the carpet. Are you all right? Yeah, except for a small dent in my brain. Oh, thank heavens. The only man at Greenspan's villa. Gloria, Gloria, somebody heard me making a very personal phone call and pulled me on the head. Did you see anybody around here? Well, not a soul. Rocky, why would somebody want to hit you? I think I know why, baby. What I want to know is who. Who? 
I stagger to my feet and I'm on my way up to old Mr. Siegel's room for a conference when I run right into the arms of Sergeant Finger, which is like running into a wounded rhinoceros on the charge. Take it easy, Rock. You could get hurt. Oh, I don't usually bump into guys with concrete chests. What'd you do, take a rocket ship? Police helicopter. What's up? Come on, I'll show you this way. This better not be no wild turkey hunt, Rocky. Here's the room here. Mr. Siegel. Mr. Siegel. That's very funny. Is it? Yeah, we better give a look, huh? Yeah. Larry? Larry, where are you? Hey, Larry. He's gone. Now, ain't that just charming? Sarge, I'm telling you, the guy was here with a suitcase full of loot. Maybe he changed his mind, conked me, and took off. Sure, that's what happened. Fortune, I ought to blame you for getting me up here. I ought to put you in a freezer. I got a good mind to bend up your nose. Sarge, before you do, just so it shouldn't be a total loss. What? Come on down for a bowl of Mama Greenspan's chicken soup. I turn the good sergeant over to Mama in the kitchen and head back to her office to look around. I don't have to look for long. A second later, I'm nosing my way up the stairs like a bloodhound following a salami salesman home from work. Come in. Hello, Mrs. Rafferty. Oh, hello. What do you want? I brought you a little nosh. I beg your pardon? Here's the rest of the strudel Mama gave you out in the kitchen. You dropped it on the floor of the office when you hit me on the head. You're out of your mind. Look, sister. I know you heard me talking to Mama about that loot in old Mr. Siegel's room. You figured maybe you could grab off a small hunk, so you knocked me out and went up there. Only you're a very nervous eater, so you left a trail of strudel crumbs all the way up from my body to the room. What do you want? Where's the money? I don't know. Why don't you ask Larry? I will. And if you don't know anything about it, how do you know who Larry is? Well, uh, I just assumed... You just assumed you were talking to a schnook. Now, look, miss. There's a homicide man downstairs right now. Are you going to level with me, or do I turn you over to him? Oh, please, please, no. I'm not a criminal. I've never done anything. Except what? I overheard you and Mama in the kitchen, and I put two and two together. So I I hit you and went up to 212. I I said if he didn't give me half the money, I'd tell Mr. Martin where he was hiding. Then what happened? He gave me $5,000. I never had that much money in my life. Uh, Here. It's in this drawer. Take it. Please take it. I don't want it. I don't know what made me do it. And you don't know where he is? Oh, honest, I don't. He was still in the room when I left. Honest, Mr. Fortune. All right, sister. Now, look, you stay right here and hang on to this five grand until I get back with the law. And don't think you're going to pull a disappearing act. Matter of fact, you don't look like you're going to win any prizes in the Olympic dash. I leave Rafferty nervously munching her way through a pile of salted almonds and head for the kitchen to get Sergeant Finger. En route, I am mousetrapped by Gloria Miller. And she's got that look in her eye. Just like a chorus girl watching an elderly banker with a weak heart. Rocky. What? You haven't been directing my social life much. Uh, honey, it isn't that I'm not interested. I got a lot of things to do right now. How about uh, rowing on the lake for a while? Later, later, later. Ping pong? Later, honey. Want to get married? Later, I... What am I saying? 
Glory, look, excuse me. I got things to do. What things? For old Mr. Siegel? For old Mr. Siegel. What's he got that I ain't? Honey, if you only knew. I bust into the kitchen where Hamilton Fingers just about to lower himself into his third bowl of chicken soup and tell him I finally got part of the loot. He pounds after me up to the widow Rafferty's room and we open the door. Now maybe you'll believe me when you see the lettuce patch this kid has in her bureau drawer. Open it. Okay, Mrs. Rafferty, here's the... Holy Hilda. You say you was just conversing with this party? A minute ago, Sarge. I'm telling you, she I was... You don't here... look like a very lively conversationalist, Rock. Not with that sash covered around her throat. The money, the money. It's gone. My, my. How unfortunate for you. What do you mean, for me? Rocky Monvu, my pal. You've been giving me a lot of gas about crooks and loot and everything else, but so far all I've seen is this corpse, and all I know, the rest is just smoke to make it look like something else is going on. What are you talking about? I told you, you when I You told me. Now I'm telling you. We're going down to the chateau to ask a few questions, and pal, you better have the answer. Sergeant, my old, my old pal, my buddy, I'd like to accompany you just for kicks, but a friend of a friend of mine is in bad trouble, and he needs help. So for a short while... Fall down. The sergeant settles gracefully into a pile of blubber and I shut the door behind me. First stop is old Mr. Siegel's room and guess who I find there. Well, well. Oh, oh Rocky. Uh-huh. You looking for something, Gloria? Um, no. No, I, I thought maybe you were here. Sure. So you were looking for me in the dresser drawers and under the carpet. You can't tell where you'll find a man sometimes. Say, that's very funny. Come on, what are you doing here? Honest, Rocky, I was looking for you. Who turned this room upside down? That's how I found it. Look at me. No, no, nobody could look that dumb and really not be dumb. All right, honey. Where's Mr. Siegel? A good question. What are you looking for? A hundred thousand clams. Ooh, would you mind if I helped? Not at all. It looks as if somebody else conducted a search, too. Let's try a few places they haven't looked. Mattress. Phone book. Nothing. What's on the tray? A pile of blintzes I took up to Mr. Siegel this morning. Looks like he never got a chance to eat them. That's wasteful. When I'm married, if my husband wastes food like that... <laughs> Listen to me talking when I'm married. Um... I can't even get proposed to. What are you doing? Eating a blintz. You get a bad one? <coughs> I got a bad one, all right. It's made out of dough, real dough. Five grand in each blintz. What do you know? Larry must have hid the money here after Mrs. Rafferty put the bite on him. Come on, honey, grab a few blintzes and let's go. Hold it. All right, Louie, drop the blintz. Get him up, the body is. Do like the man says, honey. Mind if I close the door? Might suddenly get drafty in here. And if somebody makes a move... Help yourself. Thought I gave this place a good going over. But I never would have looked inside a blintz for that kind of dough. <laughs> That's a joke. I know. I already made it and we laughed. You ain't never gonna laugh again unless you tell me where Larry is hiding. You just heard the last laugh then, pal, because I don't know. Yeah? That's a good one, too. Listen, punk. I had to choke it out of the fat lady a little while ago. I'd just as soon do the same for you. Now, where is that double-crosser? She said he was hiding in here. You mean old Mr. Siegel? I mean Larry Greenspan. Now, start talking. 
Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon the earth... Oh, you're going to be a wise guy, huh? Okay, punk, you're asking for it. So are you, Bugsy, and you're going to get it right now. Hold it, Bugsy. Why, you... Are you okay? Yeah, wait till I check for ventilation. <laughs> I guess he missed it. I was beginning to wonder if you really wanted to hear the whole Gettysburg address before you came in with that fire escape. Wanted to make sure you saw me out there. How'd you get there? When the fat lady said she'd squawked a Bugsy, I decided maybe I'd better get a change of room for an outside exposure. The cop get here? Finger, yeah. Poor soul, he's in 216, resting. Gloria, put down Bugsy's gun. You can get hurt. Thanks, but I just want to make sure I don't have any trouble. What do you mean, trouble? When I take the money. What? Hand it over, please, Rob. Uh, now, wait a minute, honey. What is this? What happened to the sweet little secretary who was looking for a man? Rocky, I have a confession to make. The man I was looking for is Larry Greenspan. Who is this tomato, Rocky? Well, up to now, I thought she was a man-eating barracuda from Flatbush. I am from Flatbush, Rocky, but I'm not a barracuda. Well, just who are you, baby, or what are you? I, um, I'm an agent for the United States Treasury Department. <laughs> You can never judge a T-man by the rustle of his bustle, I always say. I say it, but it never does any good. After I recover from the shock of Gloria Miller turning out to be a female shamus, we revive the good Sergeant Finger and go down to break the news to Mama. That's the way it is, Mama. The good Sergeant here says Larry might even get off with a commendation. Ah, oh, such a good boy. More blintzes, Sergeant? Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a couple. Oh, and you, miss? Well, thanks, but I I've got to get this money back to the authorities. Rocky, you'll have some. You got enough? Oh, I'll whip up some fresh dough. Well, wait a minute now. If it's all the same to you, this time make them with the kind of dough you can't spend. That last batch was a little too rich for my taste. That's Frank Sinatra in Social Director on Rocky Fortune from February the 9th, 1954. Next up, it's The Whistler. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Christopher Lee welcoming you back to Mystery Theater. Now for The Whistler. And our tale, Mavis Cameron Disappears. The Whistler.
I am the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now the whistler's strange story, Mavis Cameron Disappears. Mavis Cameron was one of thousands of American business girls, a filing clerk in the Fifth National Bank in Chicago. At 25, Mavis was rather pretty and had a pleasing singing voice. She also loved the spotlight. Naturally, she found bank work a little dull. Even that night when Mavis and four of the girls in the bank had dinner in the main dining room of the fashionable Park Wilson Hotel, it seemed a little dull until the after-dinner coffee was served. Then the MC of the floor show asked Mavis to sing a number, and she felt better. She felt still better following the outburst of applause at the conclusion of her number. So much better, she decided to drop into the Park Wilson's fashionable bar, make a phone call, and have a nightcap before going home. Scotch and soda, please. Mix it. Right. This ought to do it? I'm sure it will. Keep the change. Oh, thank you. Uh, give me the usual, Joe. Straight bourbon? What else? Hey, how's it covered? <laughs> On the nose. I, uh, just heard your song. You were terrific. Thank you. You know... With a voice like yours, you could be packing them in at a good nightclub. Oh, now I get it. You're a professional talent scout and want to get me into the movies. No. No, I'm Dan Spinelli, professional gambler. Does that shock you? Not in the least. Live and let live is my motto. And that's what I'm going to do right now. What do you mean by that? Live my life and let you live yours. Good night, Mr. Spinelli. Oh, just think... Tomorrow I can tell the girls at the office I met a real live gambler. You, uh, you could tell them a lot more than that. Yes? Uh, you've heard of Domingo's out beyond Lakeside? Of course. It's a private gambling club, isn't it? Oh, it's more than a gambling club. Swell dining room, swell floor, swell floor show. A lot of big people go out there. Nightclub operators. People that count. So? So? I'm going out there right now. Why don't you come along, baby? Me? Hmm. I'll introduce you to a lot of people who could push along that voice of yours. The producer of the floor show is a friend of mine. I'm not kidding, he really is. I'm afraid not, Mr. Spinelli. I've heard that one before. Uh, you're exactly like I figured you'd be. You office scouts, you're all alike. You're a bunch of dreamers. You talk a lot about the swell careers you could have with the right break. And when you do get a chance to meet some of the right people, what do you do? What do you do? You run home scared to death. Now, just a minute, Mr. Spinelli. Oh, I'm not blaming you. Why shouldn't you go home? At home, you can listen to the radio, eat candy, have a terrific time. And if you go to Domingo's with me, you can't tell what might happen. You might have to even meet a couple of show producers. So you just play it safe, baby. It may be dull at home, but you'll always get to work on time. Well, is that all you have to say? Yeah, that's all. Very nice. Wait a minute. Yeah? Uh, could we be back fairly early? <laughs> sure. We'll leave any time you say. Well, what are we waiting for, Mr. Starmaker? 
Spinelli used just the right approach, didn't he, Mavis? You know you're being a fool. At this time, you've gone too far. But as the hours pass, you tell yourself your fears are groundless. Dan treats you with perfect courtesy. And you're surprised at the number of prosperous-looking people he seems to know. You help him lose several hundred dollars, then proceed to the rendezvous room and enjoy the floor show. Afterwards, you dance. Suddenly, you've had enough. Dan. Uh, Dan, would you mind if we sat the rest of this out? Oh, sure not. What's the matter, kid? You tired? Awfully tired. And I have to get up pretty early. Well, I always try to make lady happy. But here we are. Come on, take the load off your feet. I'll order another drink. Oh, I don't think I want another drink. Do you mind if we leave now? Uh, sure, sure. I'll, I'll just finish this. When we'll be on our way, huh? Say, what stuck a pin in you? Music? Yes. That song. Uh, another guy? Another guy. My fiancé. He used to whistle it all the time. Every time I hear it, it gets me a little. Oh, what happened to him? He's still overseas. Pilot? Doctor. Dr. Clint Rogers, M.D. Oh. He's been gone so long, you're, uh... You're getting a little lonesome, huh? I've been lonesome ever since he left. And do you know something? I've decided I don't want a career anymore. I just want to marry Clint. Well, it's too bad. We could have had a lot of fun, baby. Shall we go? Was it just the song, Mavis? Or was it that uneasy feeling you have about Dan that made you want to leave so suddenly? It must have been the song. Or as you're ready to leave the club grounds, Dan is still the considerate escort. Ah, here we are. Well, hop in. You've really got yourself a car, mister. <laughs> like it? Mm-hmm. You, uh, want to take the wheel? Oh, I'd love to. Well, go uh, ahead. You sure you don't mind? <laughs> Why should I? We'll probably be safer, too. <laughs> As you speed Dan's convertible toward the city limits in your tiny apartment, you're glad your reckless little adventure is nearing its end. Everything's been fine so far. But you can't throw off a feeling of uneasiness. For several miles, Dan says little, seems preoccupied. And you feel relieved when he breaks his rather strange silence. Oh, uh, Mavis, you don't happen to have a couple of aspirin with you, do you? All of a sudden, I've, uh, I got a terrific headache. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't any. Believe it or not, I've never had a headache in my life. You're lucky. Say, uh, would you mind stopping for a minute at that sandwich shop up ahead? Maybe I can get some aspirin there. Well, I doubt it, but we'll give it a try. Say, my battery's down, so just keep the motor running while I'm gone, will you? This will only take a few seconds anyway. Well, it's your car. I said get going and get going fast. Has a gun in your ribs, baby. You just saw what happened to one guy that crossed me. Well, Mavis, 
your stupid little adventure starting with a pickup in a cocktail lounge didn't end the way you thought it would, did it? You didn't expect to be an involuntary accomplice in a holdup and shooting, did you? For a few seconds, you're so dazed with shock you act like an automaton. Your handling of the car is instinctive, and finally, you find words. Is he dead? He is, unless he got a plastic heart. Are oh, you? Oh, why was I such a fool? Shut up. Turn right at the next corner. This car's been tailing us for the last five minutes. I'm glad. I hope it's a prowl car. It'll save me the trouble of phoning the police. Uh, good. He didn't turn. Baby, you shouldn't have said what you did about phoning the cops. This is a pretty dark street, baby. It's after midnight. You would have a fatal accident. Not a soul in this whole world would know about that sandwich shop job except me. Oh, Dan, you... You wouldn't... Better pull over and park. We've got a couple of things to talk over. Oh. Pull over, I said. Ah, oh, baby. Oh, please, Dan. Don't kill me. I... I know you can do it easy, but I swear I'll never tell about tonight. It's the way you feel now. An hour from now, you'll feel different. No, I won't. I swear I won't. I'm making a deal with you, Dan. Don't you see? I, I'm trading you my word for my life. I'll keep it, Dan. I, I swear I will. You don't have to kill me. Kill you? <laughs> what, what makes you think I want to kill you? A gorgeous dish like you? Oh, no. No, I, I was thinking about marrying you, baby. You see... The law don't let wives testify against their husbands. When Dan leaves and you finally reach your apartment, your senses are reeling. Your brain is spinning. You hear Dan's final words over and over again. I'll pick you up at ten in the morning. Remember, you waited for me and drove the getaway car. That makes you guilty, too, baby. Now you're beginning to see what you're up against, aren't you, Mavis? Of course, what Dan told you about wives not being permitted to testify against husbands isn't true. Not when the action occurs before marriage. But you don't know that, do you? And it wouldn't help much if you did. You do know Dan is a murderer and wouldn't hesitate to kill you if he thought it necessary. What you should do is phone the police. But you've made a pact with a murderer, haven't you? Yes. It saved your life, and you think you must keep it. You try to snatch a little sleep, but sleep is impossible. Finally, at six o'clock, the morning paper is shoved under your apartment door. The headlines sicken you. Sandwich shop owner killed in holdup. The subheadings are even worse. Unidentified man and woman. Seen fleeing from the scene of the crime in open car. There it is, Mavis. It seems hopeless, doesn't it? Even if you call the police, you know your story would sound phony. You were seen with Dan at Domingo's just before the crime by scores of people. He introduced you to several as his best girlfriends. You can hear the district attorney now pounding at you with questions, which will damn you. You were friendly with Spinelli, were you not? And you were at the wheel of Spinelli's car when you drove him from the crime, weren't you? 
And you realize how foolish your answers will sound in a courtroom. I, he, he told me he had a headache. And he thought maybe the sandwich shop man might have some aspirin tablets. <laughs> More from The Whistler after this. If you enjoy classic radio shows like The Lone Ranger, The Shadow, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and Suspense, become a member of the Classic Radio Club. Each month, you'll receive 10 half-hour classic radio shows, along with historical liner notes. The 10 shows will be on five CDs or via digital download, whichever you prefer. You'll also receive an email every week with a digital link to the full five-hour Hollywood 360 radio show and the 30-minute Radio Rarities podcast that Lisa Wolf and I co-host. In total, you'll receive 34 classic radio shows per month. Become a Classic Radio Club member at ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535 to speak to a live operator. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535. That's 815-900-7535. Now, back to The Whistler. There's no way to turn, is there, Mavis? But frightened as you are, you're sure of two things. You'll never marry Dan, and you'll never allow your absent fiancé, Dr. Clint Rogers, to be remotely involved in your difficulty. It seems there's only one thing to do. Leave town, disappear, until things clear up. You've only three hours. It's seven o'clock now, and Dan's due at ten. Not much time, but you're in a tough spot. And you quickly throw a few belongings into an overnight bag. At nine o'clock, you're at the bank, where you make a hurried explanation of your unexpected departure and withdraw your savings. At ten, you're on an eastbound plane. Six months later, you're featured singer at the Ten of Spades, a prosperous little night spot in Brooklyn, under the name of Doris Trent. Uh, that voice came in handy, didn't it, Mavis? I'd like to recommend a looking when I've been thinking about what a wonderful spot. There's coffee and bananas and the temperature high. So take a trip and on a ship for sailing away across the Agua to Managua, Nicaragua, Olay. You went over bigger than ever tonight, didn't you? And Vern Wilson, the London musical comedy producer, and his secretary watched you closely. A few months in London would be a great help. You're pretty sure he was there just to catch your act. You're confident when you reach your dressing room. But as the minutes pass, you begin to wonder. Well, Mavis, nothing to worry about after all. This seems to be your lucky night. Come in. Well, 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 well. Long time no see, Miss Trent. Uh, Doris Trent, I think the billing said. Well. Well, now that you've found me, what's on your mind? That note to the police, written just after you left, telling all about that sandwich shop job. Gave the exact time, my name, the license number, my car, gave everything. 
You're the only one who knew all that, baby. It wasn't me, Dan. Maybe not. But I'll just never feel safe until we're married. And this time, I'm not taking any chances. We're going up to Connecticut tonight. Ten minutes, Doris. Thanks, Ernie. I, uh, I've got to go on now, Dan. Let's talk this over in the morning. I said tonight. Ah, go ahead. Go ahead, do your show. Only, baby, if you got any ideas about double-crossing me and calling them cops, you drove the getaway car, remember? In case anything serious happens to me, there's a written confession in my pocket telling exactly how you helped me pull a job. Ah. Go ahead. Go ahead, I'll wait for you here. You start down the hallway toward the powder room off stage. You finally realize what a fool you've been, what a coward. But you're not going to keep on being a fool, are you, Mavis? Not with that wall telephone just five steps ahead of you. Operator. Get me police headquarters. Quick. Just a moment, please. Hello? Police headquarters. Better hang up quick, baby, and I mean quick. I had a hunch you'd try to double-cross me. I figured I'd better keep my eye on you till the show was over. You should have looked around. Now, I know for sure who wrote that note to the police. I told you I didn't write that note. You just tried to call the cops. So all of a sudden, I've lost interest in my wedding. We'll just go for a little ride instead. Come on, baby. Start walking. No, Dan, I'm not going. If I have to get shot, I'll take it right here. Let go my arm. Come. What's going on here? Something wrong, Doris? This yes. punk bothering Why, you? Why, you are... he, he is. He, he wants to date me. Tell him to leave, will you, Eddie? Maybe I'd better take him into the office and call the cops. You see Dan's hand tighten on the gun in his pocket. Be careful how you answer, Mavis. You can't let the club manager get hurt. He's been swell to you ever since the day you walked into the tennis spade. Oh, no, thanks, Eddie. There's no need for that. He's just another wolf. Tell him to leave. That's good enough. You heard what the lady said, Bub. Start traveling. Okay, Pop. Anything you say. I'll see the lady later. Even the police can't help you much right now, can they, Mavis? They've been after Dan for months and he's still on the loose. And you're sure he's going to kill you on sight. A minute ago, you thought you were all through running. Now you must make another hasty exit. And this time, you're ready. You've always known Dan might show up and you've kept most of your street clothes in the tennis spades wardrobe room. Your money in the club safe. With Eddie's help, you're out of the club in 20 minutes. An hour later, you're on a train. Some weeks later, under a new name, Lily Gray, you're a top favorite with the customers at the Hacienda, a little night spot just south of the border. But after five long months, you hate it, don't you, Mavis? The Hacienda's little more than a honky-tonk. And you hate yourself for your past stupidity. You hate your new name, Lily Gray. And most of all, you despise the proprietor, Spanish Joe, and his crude greed for money. And now he approaches the table where you sit alone with a sandwich and a cup of coffee. Hey, Lily, there's a nice American gentleman just came in. He wants to buy for you some champagne. Not now, Joe. I'm eating a sandwich. Please, Lily, let him sit with you. And treat him nice. Let him spend his money. Oh, 
Okay, Joe. I'll let him spend his money on champagne. But if he gets any ideas... He won't get ideas. Here he comes. Oh, come, Mr. Fontaine. Sit down. Miss Gray, she likes champagne. Sure you don't mind, Miss Gray? When you're going to buy champagne? Of course not. Sit down. Thank you. Cigarette? No, thanks. Well, it's been a long chase. But I finally caught up with you, didn't I? Mavis Cameron. Well, Mavis, after all your attempts to lose your identity, after all you've taken at the Hacienda, a man you've never seen sits at your table and calls you Mavis Cameron. He's a detective, of course. It's all quite clear, isn't it? Dan Spinelli was captured and involved you as his accomplice. And now this man plans to take you back to Chicago to face a nasty trial with a card stacked against you for a crime committed by another. And you're not going to be returned as a fugitive from justice if you can help it. Not after what you've been through. You've only one card left, Mavis. It's um, funny you should call me Mavis Cameron. I was just thinking about her tonight before you came in. We used to work together in the same floor show. The customers used to mistake us for each other, too. Yeah, I'll bet they did. I'm Detective Sergeant James Fontaine, Chicago Department of Police. You know why I'm here. We're leaving in the morning, Miss Cameron. Like the billing says, the name is Lily Gray. My papers say the same thing. As I was saying, I knew Mavis Cameron intimately. I'd like to tell you about her. I think it might help you solve your case. Sure, sure, go ahead. If it'll make you feel any better. The more you tell now, the less you'll have to tell later. There's not much to tell, really. Mavis Cameron was just a good kid that got a bad break. In love with one guy and scared to death of another. A hoodlum named Dan Spinelli. Go on. This is getting interesting. She went a little silly one night and let him pick her up in a cocktail bar. And they went night clubbing. On the way home, Spinelli tried to stick up a sandwich shop and kill the proprietor. Mavis drove the getaway car with a gun in her ribs. Okay. So the guy was a little rough. If she was innocent, why didn't she go to the police right afterward? Before they got home, Spinelli decided to kill her, too. She swore if he'd let her go, she'd keep quiet. And she did. That wasn't very smart. No, it wasn't. If she was innocent, why did she take a powder? Oh, didn't I tell you? Uh, Spinelli had another great idea, too. Since a wife can't testify against her husband, he gave her the choice of marrying him or else. You know, you talk a pretty fair game. Is that all you have to tell me? That's all. Cigarette? Thanks. Light? Thanks again, Miss Gray. Did you say Miss Gray? You said you were Lily Gray, didn't you? Yes, I did. You're a nice guy, Mr. Fontaine. Uh, I hope your girlfriend comes back to Chicago and clears things up sometime. I, uh, I think she will. Sometime. 
Like I said, she was in love with a guy. Well, this was a pretty long trip for nothing, you might say. Just one more bum steer. But I'm glad it happened. I always figured Spinelli's confession was phony. Confession? Yeah, he had it all written out, big as life. Is, uh, is Spinelli in jail? Spinelli's dead. The Brooklyn police closed in on him one night about five months ago. He tried to shoot his way out. The department boy shot straighter. Five months ago? In Brooklyn? Yeah, that's right. A woman called the police one night from a little nightclub, the Ten of Spades. When they answered, she hung up. So naturally, the Brooklyn boys decided to investigate. One of them spotted Spinelli in a car across the street. The funny thing about it was... They never did find out who put in that call to the police. Tonight's story were Isabel Jewell and Tony Barrett. The Whistler was produced by George W. Allen with story by Edward Bloodworth, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's The Whistler in Mavis Cameron Disappears from March the 17th, 1947. In a moment, Mr. Keene, Teresa of Lost Persons. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Mr. Keene was a grey-haired gentleman detective who, along with his assistant Mike Clancy, specialised in locating missing persons. Oftentimes, the missing person cases led to murder, as in this story, the Silver Dagger murder case on Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. It's time now for Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. Ladies and gentlemen, Anison and Kalinos present Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, one of the most famous characters of American fiction and one of radio's most thrilling dramas. Tonight and every Thursday at this same time, the famous old investigator takes from his file and brings to us one of his most celebrated missing persons cases. Tonight's case is entitled The Silver Dagger Murder Case. Our scene opens in a three-story, privately-owned white stone house in metropolitan New York. On the first floor, in a handsomely furnished study, decorated with curios from many parts of the world, a beautiful woman sits at her desk, deeply engrossed in writing a letter, unaware that death is lurking just outside her door. And this is to tell you that we must not see each other again. Apparently, 
You misjudged my motives and made a grave mistake. I am not in love with you, and I never was. Good luck, and the best of everything. Edna. Who's there? Who? What are you doing here in my apartment? I thought I made it plain that you were not to see me again. How dare you touch my things? Leave that dagger on the wall. Did you hear what I said? What are you doing with that dagger? No! No, don't! Uh, you... You... Uh, uh. Sorry to disturb you, Mr. Keene. Oh, that's quite all right, Mike. There's a strange-looking fellow in the outer office. He wants to see you. A strange-looking man? He's got a French accent, but he's he's wearing an outfit like a moving picture extra. Says his name is Lafarge, and it's a matter of life and death. Hmm. Well, I'll see him at once, Mike. Right, sir. And wait till you get a look at his makeup, boss. Sure, all he needs is a camel, and he'd be set for a trip across the desert. You wanted to see me? You are Monsieur King? Yes. My name is Lafarge, Monsieur Jean Lafarge. I am grateful that you can send to see me, Monsieur King. The, the uh, situation cannot wait. Please sit down, Mr. Lafarge. You've met my partner, Mike Clancy. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, can I ask you one question, Mister, before you tell the boss what's on your mind? But naturally, Monsieur Clancy. Where did you get that outfit? I am a North African, Monsieur. My home is in uh, French Morocco. Part of this costume is Arabian. Oh, you don't mind my saying so, Mr. Lafarge. You don't look Arabian to me. I am French, Monsieur Keene. My parents left France and moved to North Africa to Casablanca when I was a child. What was it you wanted to see me about, Mr. Lafarge? Murder, Monsieur. Saints preserve us. What's going on? Last night, a woman named Edna Coring was killed in her home here in New York. Edna Coring? Seems to me I've heard that name before. She was a very wealthy and beautiful woman, Monsieur Keene. Much in the news. Well, I didn't read about a murder in the papers this morning. It was kept from the papers, Monsieur Clancy. The police believe they will have a better chance to catch the killer if there is no publicity at the moment. Then how did you learn about it, Mr. Lafarge? I had an appointment with Edna, Miss Coring, last night. When I reached the house, the police were there investigating her murder. The man who found her body, a servant, told me what happened. And you spoke to the police? No, monsieur, I did not. I left immediately without going upstairs. I see. But please, let me explain everything first. Very well, Mr. Lafarge. I, uh, I first met Miss Coring in North Africa three years ago. She was on a tour, and she came to my place of business. I am an exporter of African curios, Mr. Keene. And she was fond of collecting odd souvenirs on her travels. What sort of odd souvenirs? Oh, masks, silverware, and knives. It, uh, it was a solid silver knife that I sold her. A dagger. It was used by her murderer. And is that why you were so reluctant to speak to the police? Because you had sold her the murder weapon? That and, uh, my relationship with Edna Corrine... We were very good friends, and nothing more. 
But the police may think... Mr. Keene, it is not for myself alone that I beg for your assistance. Edna Coring was a wonderful woman. It is only fitting that I should ask you, one of the greatest investigators in the country, to see that her murderer is caught. It seems to me, Mr. Lafarge, that your story isn't complete. Monsieur? Are you holding anything back from me? You are a very discerning man, Monsieur Keene. Yes, there is something else. I only hesitate because I don't want to involve a young man who may be innocent. Who is this young man? His name is Alan Cody. He is a young, ambitious playwright who is still unknown. I have every reason to believe that Edna Corrine was in love with him. She told me about young Cody. You also have reason to believe Alan Cody may have murdered her? She told me several days before her death that she was breaking off with him. She said that she intended to send him a letter, but I could see it was making her nervous. She wasn't quite sure how he would uh, react. Why was Edna Coring breaking off with this young man? She said there was too much of a difference in their ages, at least 14 years. Perhaps there was another reason, I do not know. However, if I may suggest it, young Cody would be the man to question first about her murder. Yes, obviously. Here is my card, Mr. Keene. I will write young Cody's address on the back for you. Very well. You have no idea how grateful I am for your help. This, this horrible thing has become a nightmare. But now I feel safe. You're safe, Mr. Lafarge, as long as you remain on the list of innocent people. I beg your pardon? If I accept this case, I intend to make a thorough investigation of everyone connected with it, Mr. Lafarge, including you. I understand that, Mr. Key. Very well. Mike Clancy and I will have a talk with Alan Cody. Perhaps he'll prove to be a starting point in our search for Edna Coring's murderer. Yes? We're looking for Alan Cody. Does he live here? Why do you want to see him? I'll explain when I meet Mr. Cody. Who is it, Juliet? Someone to see Alan. Someone else? May I ask who you gentlemen are? Uh, My name is Juliet Forsythe, and this is Mrs. Cody, Alan's mother. My name is Keene. My partner, Mike Clancy, and I... I knew it. Something awful has happened to Alan, Mrs. Cody. Mr. Keene's a private investigator. Calm yourself, Juliet. I trust my boy implicitly. I knew those other men who came here this morning were policemen, even though they weren't in uniform. And now, Mr. Keene... Mrs. Cody, has someone questioned you about your son, Alan? Yes, Mr. Keene. They were looking for him. They didn't tell me why, but they acted like plainclothes police. They probably were. You see, your son is involved in a murder case. No! Juliet, please leave me alone with these gentlemen. I'll phone you at your flat later on. Very well, Mrs. Cody. I'll expect to hear from you. Miss Forsyth and your son are friends, Mrs. Cody? Yes, Mr. Keene. Juliet and Alan have been friends since childhood. She's a wonderful girl and my son is a good boy, no matter what they think he may be involved in. Where is he now, ma'am? I don't know, Mr. Clancy. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you until you've explained what Alan has to do with all this. A woman named Edna Coring was stabbed to death in her apartment last night. Edna Coring? You knew her, Mrs. Cody? Yes, and so did Alan. That's why we want to question her. But if you think my son had anything to do with it, Mr. King... I understand your son was in love with a murdered woman. That's not true. Then what was his relationship with her? Well, it was purely business... He's just finished writing a play, and Edna Coring was interested in helping him get it produced. 
She had money and... I know that. However, my information links your son with Mr. Coring in more than a business way. Then your information is wrong, Mr. Keene. Mrs. Cody, please don't think I've come here believing your son had a part in Miss Coring's death. All I'm looking for are facts. I thought he might be able to help me. I haven't seen Alan in three days, Mr. Keene. Hmm. Does he live here with you? Most of the time, but he also has a small studio where he often works when he wants privacy. Where is that studio, Mrs. Cody? I don't know. You mean you won't tell me? Mr. Keene, Alan is my boy. He's all I had left in the world after his father died. I'd sooner die myself than do anything to hurt him. I respect your feelings as a mother, Miss Cody. I don't blame you. But if I could only convince you that we're here to help him if he's innocent, perhaps you'll cooperate. I... I don't want to be rude, but I've said all I'm going to say. Very well, Mrs. Cody. Let's go, Mike. Mr. Keene. Yes? I swear to you, my son is innocent. For your sake, Mrs. Cody, I hope I can prove it. But my mission is to find Edna Coring's killer. When I do, I don't intend to spare him. The penalty that all murderers must pay for their crimes. Well, this is Edna Coring's house, Mr. Keene. She evidently owned this entire Whitestone building. Well, perhaps there's someone inside. Well, no one seems to be in, boss. I beg your pardon. Are you looking for someone? Oh, do you happen to know if anyone is home in Miss Coring's residence? Are you friends of hers? My name is Keene. My partner and I are private investigators. Oh, yes. I'm Anson Howe, Edna's husband. Her husband? I didn't know she was married. Edna and I were secretly married one week ago in Chicago. I've just come from police headquarters, Mr. Keene. I was told that you two were investigating Edna's murder. Please come inside. I have a key to the house. I only found out about Edna this morning when I arrived from Chicago. I'm not able to control my emotions completely as yet, so please forgive me. I understand, Mr. Howe. But perhaps you can tell me... Uh... Boss, what was that? Something hit the floor in that room. Must be a prowler in the house. Keep your gun handy, Mike, and let's investigate. Right, boss. I'll open the door. Fast. Stand where you are, young fella. Don't make a move. Who are you? I... I just came to see Edna Coring. Is I... your name Alan Cody? Yes. I thought so. How did you get in here? The door was open. It happened to be locked when we came in. Sure, and he climbed through that open window, boss. Well, all right. But I haven't taken anything. Except my own property. You mean that manuscript under your arm? If you'll let me pass, please. Just a moment, Alan. Let me see that manuscript. It's mine. I gave it to Edna to read, and I've taken it back. The boss asked for the script, young fella, so just be polite and hand it over. Give that back to me. I'll take it easy. Here it is, Mr. Keene. Alan, your play has an interesting title. Has it? The Dagger. It's a mystery melodrama. So I gathered. Sit down, Alan. What are you going to do, Mr. Keene? I'm going to read your play from cover to cover. It might prove to be as interesting as its title. The Dagger. Edna Coring, you remember, was stabbed to death 
with a silver dagger. Now back to Mr. Keene and the silver dagger murder case. The murder of beautiful, wealthy Edna Coring brings Mr. Keene, the famous investigator, and his partner, Mike Clancy, to the scene of the crime. Miss Coring's New York residence. There, Mr. Keene discovers that the victim had been secretly married to a man named Anson Howe and had apparently also had a close relationship with Alan Cody, a young playwright. Mr. Keene has surprised young Cody in the study, attempting to get hold of a copy of his latest play, which the murdered woman had had in her possession. Now, as Mr. Keene reads the manuscript of the play, which is titled The Dagger... When did you finish this play, Alan? Four weeks ago, Mr. Keene. Have you read it, Mr. Howe? Yes, my wife showed it to me. Edna said she was interested in producing it to help this young man, Alan Cody. I'd never met him, but I know who he is. You mean you were married to Edna Corey? Yes. Mr. Howe and Edna were secretly married last week, Alan. By the way, Mr. Howe, why did you and your wife keep your marriage a secret? We only kept it a secret so there wouldn't be too much newspaper publicity, Mr. Keene. And I thought she loved me. Edna told me all about you. She said she befriended you because she thought you were talented, but that you became infatuated with her. Apparently, that's the theme of this play of Alan. A young man falls in love with an older woman, then stabs her to death. Uh, Mr. Keene. Yes, Mike. Will you just look at the walls of this room? I noticed them before, Mike. Edna Coring had some odd souvenirs. My wife collected these masks and weapons as a hobby, Mr. Keene. The silver dagger that was used to kill her was taken from the empty space on that wall over there. Hmm. Mr. Howe, do you know a man named Lafarge? Jean Lafarge, the French-Moroccan? Yes, he was also in love with my wife before I married her. But he was a sensible man, Mr. Keene. Alan Cody here was different. What do you mean? I mean that I think you had something to do with my wife's murder. You have anything to offer as proof, Mr. Howe? You've just read his play, haven't you, Mr. Keene? Yes, but that's not proof of murder. It might have been a coincidence. The money he filched from my wife was no coincidence. Why, you lying... Just stay put, young fellow. What money are you referring to, Mr. Howe? Edna gave Alan Cody $15,000. You'll find three cancelled checks in her bank statements for 5000 each, endorsed by Alan Cody. I don't know a thing about that money. Mike, look through that desk and see if you can find those bank statements. Oh, I'll find them for you. They're right here in this drawer. You'll find them in this bundle of checks, Mr. Keene. For all I know, Cody tried to squeeze more money out of Edna. She refused, so he killed her. And if it's the last thing I do, I'll make certain he pays for it. Alan, Mr. Howe is telling the truth. Here are those checks, totaling $15,000 and endorsed by you. But that isn't my handwriting, Mr. Keene. It's a forgery. Write your name on this sheet of paper, quickly. Write my name? Yes, here's a pen. There you are, Mr. Keene. Hmm. Look at this, Mike. Sure, and his handwriting isn't the same as on those checks, boss, but maybe he's disguising his signature on purpose. Well, isn't anyone on my side? Do you all think I'm guilty? Even your mother knew how you felt about Edna. She came here once and quarreled with Edna, threatened her if Edna didn't break off with you. Leave my mother out of this. I'm sorry, Alan, we can't. You are what Mr. Howe just said about threats. Please phone your mother now. Look, Mr. Keene, arrest me if you want to, but leave her alone. I've caused her enough unhappiness already. Alan, will you phone your mother or must I? All right. I'll do it. Hello? Juliet? Yes. 
Yes. Let me speak to Mother, please. She's ill, Alan. She's in bed. The doctor just left. What's the matter with her? The strain was too much for her. Worrying about you. You'd better come home right away. I'll be right over. Mr. Keene, my mother's been taken ill. I've got to see her. Please give me a break. I won't try to run away. You'll find me there with my mother when you want me. On my word of honor. Your word of honor isn't enough in this case, Cody. Keep out of this, Howell. I think we can trust him, Mr. Howell. Go on, Alan. But don't leave your mother's flat until you hear from me. Thank you, Mr. Keene. How could you let him go, Mr. Keene? Suppose he... Alan Cody didn't murder your wife, Mr. Howe. At least he never endorsed these checks that were made out to him. Tell me, did your wife make these out herself? Is this her handwriting? Yes, of course. She told me she'd sent money to Alan to help him produce his play. And did she tell you that she sent these checks to him directly? Why... No, I just took that for granted. When we're dealing with murder, Mr. Howe, we take nothing for granted. Suppose we all follow young Cody to his mother's house. I have an idea that the solution to your wife's murder is there. Mr. Keene, please come in. Thank you. Juliet, you know my partner, Mike Clancy, and this is Mr. Howe, Miss Juliet Forsythe. How do you do? How do you do? How is Mrs. Cody? A little better. May we see her? Of course. She's in the bedroom with Alan. Please come with me. Mike, let me have that statement I made out before we left Edna Coring's study. Uh, here it is, boss. I still don't understand why you typed that thing out, Mr. Keene. You have complete authority to investigate the case. You don't need a statement to that effect from anyone. I prefer it this way, Mr. Howe, for my own reasons. Please come in, Mr. Keene. Mr. Keene... How do you feel, Mrs. Cody? A little better, thank you. The doctor said Mother would be all right, providing she wasn't subject to any more strain. It's her heart. Mrs. Cody, I'm convinced now that your son is innocent of Edna Coring's murder, and I'm going to prove it. Oh, Mr. Keene, do you really mean that? The boss never meant anything more in his life, ma'am. Incidentally, this is Mr. Howe. He's married to Edna Coring. Married? Then I was right about her after all. She was shameless. Take it easy, Mother. I'm all right, son. I just want you to know that when I interfered in your behalf, I knew what I was doing. Then you saw Edna Coring, Mrs. Cody. Uh, Mr. Keene, I knew she was only amusing herself with Alan. I saw her and warned her never to speak to him again or I wouldn't be responsible. Mother, be careful of what you say. I'm not afraid. I have nothing to hide. Perhaps not. But you made one mistake, Mrs. Cody. Edna Coring was only trying to be fair to Alan. She never let him on. Is that right, Alan? Yes. But if you think my mother's quarrel with Edna had anything to do with her murder... Alan, right now, all I want is complete authority to investigate this case thoroughly. But you already have that, Mr. Keene. I need it in writing, Mrs. Cody. I've prepared a statement to that effect, and Mr. Howe has already signed it. I want the rest of you to add your names. Mike, your pen, please. Okay, boss. Here, here you are. Uh, Miss Cody, sign here, please. There you are. Alan? There. Well, I guess that's all we... Oh, wait. Uh, suppose you sign it too, Juliet. After all, you're involved in this too as Alan's best friend. I'd be glad to sign, Mr. Keene. There you are, sir. Oh, thank you, Juliet. 
Now I don't want to cause Mrs. Cody any more distress, so I'll leave you for the time being. May I stay here with Mother, Mr. Keene? Yes, Alan, it's quite all right. Oh, uh, Mr. Howell, may I speak to you in the living room before I leave, please? Very well. And you too, Juliet? Excuse me, Mrs. Cody. I'll be right back. What is it, Mr. Keene? Mr. Howe, I wanted to tell you that I found your wife's murderer. What? But I prefer to finish this case out here so as not to excite Mrs. Cody. Mr. Keene, you mean you know who killed Edna Coring? Yes. Who? You did, Juliet. What? Don't try to deny it. A moment ago when you signed this statement I pretended to need, I saw that your signature matched the endorsements on these checks of Edna Coring's. You write with your left hand, Juliet which gives your handwriting a peculiar slant. But, Mr. Keene, how did this girl get hold of those checks for my wife? Your wife believed Juliet Forsyth could be trusted as Alan's best friend. She wanted to help him produce his play, but thought perhaps he wouldn't accept her money after she broke off with him, and that Juliet could persuade him. But Juliet promptly forged Alan's signature and cashed the checks herself. No, that's a lie. Now listen, young lady, you raise a rumpus and scare that old lady inside, and I'd carry you out on my back. Edna Coring took Alan away from me. All my life I hoped he'd marry me. But he... he never knew. And Edna Coring stole him away. Are you trying to say that you killed Edna Coring because of your love for Alan? Don't you see, Mr. Keene? I wanted to protect him from her. I admit I was terribly jealous, but I... I thought of him as well. In other words, Juliet, you're looking for sympathy. Well, I'm going to disappoint you. There is no excuse for murder and no sympathy for it. Even less in your case. How can you say that? Look at me. Am I pretty? Am I rich and beautiful like Edna was? No. All I had was Alan and she... You claim you loved Alan. Yet you stole money that was rightfully his. Love such as yours is false, Juliet. You stabbed Edna Coring to death to cover your theft and forgery. No. No. Maybe jealousy had a part in it, too. <laughs> Maybe your mind did become twisted over the years. But the fact remains that you murdered primarily for profit. That's how you'll be tried. Take her away, Mike. I'll put in a call to Lieutenant Hale at police headquarters and tell him that the Silver Dagger murder case is finally solved. And so Mr. Keene finds the solution to the Silver Dagger murder case. The next time you're suffering from the pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia, try Anison. You'll bless the day you heard of this incredibly fast way to relieve these pains. Now, the reason Anison is so wonderfully fast-acting and effective is this. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, Anison contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven, active ingredients in easy-to-take tablet form. Thousands of people have received envelopes containing Anison tablets from their own dentist or physician, and in this way have discovered the incredibly fast relief Anison brings from pain of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. So next time such pain strike, take Anison. For most effective relief, use only as directed. Your druggist has Anison in handy boxes of 12 and 30, and economical family size bottles of 50 and 100. The name is Anison, A-N-A-C-I-N. 
Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, is based on the novel Mr. Keene. The radio sequel is originated and produced by Frank and Ann Hubbard. Dialogue by Lawrence Klee. Bennett Kilpack plays Mr. Keene. It is on the air every Thursday at this time. Don't miss Mr. Keene next Thursday when the kindly old Tracer turns to the Martin Street murder case. Ever suffer heartburn from acid indigestion? New Visadol mints, medically proven, quickly rid stomach of that blown-up feeling anywhere, anytime. Visadol mints give longer-lasting relief than baking soda, help prevent immediate return of the trouble, soothe irritated stomach lining, let you sleep when indigestion strikes at night. Carry new Visadol mints for fast relief, and always have Visadol powder in your home. Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, will be on the air next Thursday at this same time. This is Larry Elliott saying goodbye for Mr. Keene and the Whitehall Pharmacal Company, makers of Anison and Kalinos, and many other dependable, high-quality drug products. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's Bennett Kilpack as Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons, in the Silver Dagger Murder Case from October the 13th, 1949. In a moment, I'll tell you what's coming up on the next Mystery Theatre. Be sure to join me next time on Mystery Theatre when we'll hear Suspense, starring Peter Laura, Nick Carter, Master Detective, and Murder by Experts. This is your host, Christopher Lee, saying thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Mystery Theater with your host, Christopher Lee. The producers of Mystery Theater wish to thank this station and Radio Spirits for helping make this series possible. This copyrighted radio series is written by Dennis Etchison, Jim McCants speaking. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, was about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.